apologetics, personality, and a one-track mind. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science made their life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And this week, wow, are there some tough questions. Uh, It seems to be the trend lately that you're sending me harder and more difficult to answer questions. And uh, boy, I'll see if I can rise to the challenge. What do you say? Let's get it started. couple of quick announcements this week. One, season three of the Liturgist podcast is here. We kicked off a new season with uh, episode 37 on the Enneagram. We've gotten really good feedback on that. So if you're a Liturgist podcast listener, go ahead and fire up your uh, feed subscription to that show. It's back on the air. And uh, another thing that is pretty amazing, honestly, for me, is if you hear this sound... That's me knocking on a hardback copy of my upcoming book, Finding God in the Wave. So this multi-year journey of mine that many of you have been on with me, that's coming. September 13th is the big day that Finding God in the Waves will be on bookshelves everywhere. So if you don't have your copy yet, go to findinggodinthewaves.com. We've got some pre-order bonuses for people who... Go ahead and buy the book before it comes out. Uh, You'll get a chance to win a one-on-one conversation with me and a pre-release copy of the book. You'll get some bonus meditation content to help uh, guide your prayer practice or meditation practice, whether or not you believe in God. Those are things that are neurologically beneficial. We've got one more bonus we're going to announce really soon. But other than that, it's coming. It's real. This book about my journey of faith lost and found, becoming an atheist, having that mystical experience on the beach, and then stuff I've never talked about anywhere. Uh, Half the book is about the science of how I put my faith back together, how I found a way to approach the Bible, to approach the church, to approach Christianity at all as a skeptic and as someone who questioned supernatural claims. So Finding God in the Waves is coming, as is um, the Finding God in the Waves book tour. There's a lot of stops on this thing. So here's the problem with uh, talking about the book, talking about the book tour. I don't want to like wear out the people who listen to the show all the time, but I get constant tweets and Facebook messages from people who listen to the show or follow my work asking me if I'll be in a given city, and I'm going to be there. So I've got to get the word out about these dates. So here's kind of a rundown of where we're going to be. Uh, I'm going to launch the whole book tour right here in Tallahassee, Florida, with a launch party on September 13th. I'm going to have some musical guests. Uh, That's going to be a lot of fun, and I'd love to see you there if you're in or around the Tallahassee area. From there, and I'll just kind of list these off, I'll go to Denver, to Naples, to Philadelphia, Chicago, Nashville, Columbus, Atlanta, Savannah, Georgia, Several Los Angeles stops. You've been asking about those. We'll go to Glendale, to Mission Hills, and then we'll also go to Costa Mesa for you Orange County folks. Uh, Going to Portland, Oregon, Grand Haven, Michigan, 
um, headed to Northwest Nazarene University in Idaho and uh, headed to Houston, Texas with Biologos. Now, that's the stops we've been out so far, and that is quite a few. Uh, But I will also be going uh, to other cities that aren't announced yet. So you want to keep going to findinggodintheways.com slash tour to find out uh, if I'll be near you. Finally, and this is pretty cool, Andrew Galucky is uh, the guy that does all the pre-production work on Ask Science Mike. He goes through and filters through all of your questions and picks out questions for our patrons to answer. And he is not just a podcast person, although he has his own show called Middle Class Musician, which is quite good. Um, But primarily, he's actually a singer, songwriter, and a musician. And he's really talented. It's, It's hysterical to me. Uh, that I'm like a, a, you know, a nerd and Andrew's like this really cool musician guy. And then he helps me with the podcast. Just seems kind of backwards. That seems like I should be getting Andrew coffee or something, but he has a new single out called I'm not going anywhere on noise trade. It's free. It's amazing. So I'd encourage you. I'll have a link on AskScienceMike.com this week to Andrew's new single, I'm not going here. I'd really encourage you to go check it out. It's it's quite lovely. And uh, that's all the announcements this week. So let's answer some science questions. Okay, so I just listened to an episode of this great podcast called Invisibilia. This episode is particularly called The Personality Myth. And in it, they break down the notion that personality is a fixed part of us and that we perceive that what we perceive as personality is just how we respond to our circumstances. This raised so many questions for me, but I bring this to you to see if you know how prevailing this notion is or if it's fairly uncommonly believed among scientists. Also, if this is the new way we should be thinking about personality, what does this mean for faith? How can we believe we're made uniquely when we don't even have an actual personality? Anyways, just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on the subject. I've really been enjoying contemplating this. Thank you. So first of all, I really love Invisibilia. It's a great podcast from NPR. And although I haven't heard this particular episode, uh, when I do have time to listen to podcasts, Invisibilia is usually way up my list, although I tend to be very, very far behind (laughs) on most podcasts. As I've noticed, people who make podcasts are generally really behind on listening to podcasts. It's kind of a strange thing. Most of the people I know who make podcasts, are they just get behind. I don't know. Maybe it's because we don't commute as much as everyone else. Uh, <laughs> so we don't have much, as much car time or subway time to listen to podcasts. But this thing of personality is something I think about a lot. You know, our first episode of the Liturgist podcast this season was about the Enneagram. And the Enneagram is a personality typing system with spiritual roots. And uh, like other personality typing systems, it does not have a lot of scientific or clinical merit. The results and methodologies that produce these personality typing systems tends to be non-rigorous, although they can be extraordinarily useful means for introspection and to create a common language to talk about how you view the world, how you feel, how you respond in different situations. Um, Well, let's talk about what personality is at all. I Literally, here's a definition. The combination of characteristics or qualities 
that form an individual's distinctive character. And if you look in psychology or sociology, um, in any science, which they tend to be the softer sciences, that study personality, um, there's absolutely a, a scientific basis to what we call personality. For example, research pretty consistently bears out that um, introversion versus extroversion is a, is a real phenomenon uh, that is consistent in studies that involve brain imaging, for example. Although lately, I've read a couple articles that uh, would say that you're not um, fixed as an introvert or an extrovert, that that is actually something that can change over time. And no matter what metric you're looking at for personality, that's a key thing to look at, the change over time. See, our personalities really do vary based on our circumstances and our experiences. So no, personality is not some fixed attribute. Personality itself is really just a construct of describing the emergent behaviors and patterns in a very sophisticated organism, humans. We have the ability to have a consciousness that is a narrative story we tell ourselves, which means we can describe ourselves to ourselves. <laughs> and that's where you get things like a construct like personality, a way of describing ourselves to other people, or for others to articulate their observations about us. When you combine this with some sort of clinical discipline, where we uh, study people in groups and write down the results, we look for physical and physiological correlations or environmental correlations, then you start to see some scientific basis to personality. But it is not fixed. Now, we can have different inclinations towards different personality attributes, one person may be genetically and environmentally more predisposed to be angry, for example. But with intentional work, with assistance in therapy, someone can learn to be less angry. And another person may be provoked so often that they become more likely to be angry. I don't think this means that we're not uniquely made or that we don't really have a personality. I actually think one of the most beautiful things about people is our capacity to change over time, to respond to different environments, to grow. But this, this capacity to grow must have a dark side. We also have a capacity to get worse. There's no inevitable you know, moral progression in the human species. It's something that comes with work. And on that note, it's also our capacity to willfully influence and change our personality is also limited. It's, it's something that is a discipline that must be taken over time uh, to shift personality features intentionally. Uh, although, you know, traumatic experiences, poor access to basic resources and life necessity, chronic stress, those things can also change your personality. You're, it's just not a willful process. That's you responding to your environment. Um, if you listen to the show for a long time, you know that I'm a mystic. I don't have very specific ideas about God. I have experiences with God, um, but my, my theology is much more limited towards most people who, uh, or, or compared to most people who would call themselves Christians or use the label Christian. But if we imagine kind of a, for a moment, a more conventional 
Christian depiction of God, a being uh, with consciousness and will and a desire, a specific plan for humanity, who, who uniquely made individual people with intent. The fact that our personalities can change don't in any way undermine that idea. Uh, in fact, if you have a, a creator leaving human beings with a unique mark, but still the capacity to change over time, I, I think that would be a stroke of genius, not uh, <laughs> not a design flaw. Um, in fact, one of the things we work hardest at creating artificially intelligent systems and robots that can navigate environments is that very capacity for change. We're pretty good at engineering a machine that can operate in a very specific condition, say an automotive robot that can paint a car fender or place welds in a certain position. And they can do that with a a speed and a dexterity that we can't match. But if you change anything in that environment, the robot is no longer able to cope. So our capacity to change The fact that our personality is not fixed but can change over time is really a sign of human resilience and strength and beauty, not some kind of divine negligence. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hey Mike, like you, I was also raised Southern Baptist, became an atheist, and refound my faith. Yet instead of coming back to Christianity on faith alone, I found my way through it all using reason and logic, and of course, his call. It was because of good apologetics and answers to all my questions that I came back to my faith, which is why it struck my curiosity when you said you didn't find apologetics satisfactory when trying to answer your burning questions as an atheist. I am very passionate about using reason and logic to defend the Christian faith because I know what the effects are when you are told to believe something without reason. So, all this to say, I was wondering what sort of apologetics and philosophy you read and why you found it so dissatisfying. That's a really excellent question. And I know that my dispassion or my antipathy, that's the word I was looking for, my antipathy for biblical apologetics and other forms of faith apologetics is not representative of everyone. Um, I have an old friend who also struggled with doubt, and he, like you, found his way back to you know, a very orthodox, evangelical Christian faith, and uh, he now is what he does. He is an apologist, uh, and I am not. <laughs> I am not an apologist. I don't make a rational defense of the traditional Christian faith. This is it's tough to do this without getting really thorny. I think we've discussed this in like a lot greater detail because of the lack of time limitations on the liturgist podcast. I also talk about this a lot in my upcoming book Finding God in the Waves, but essentially my objection to both apologetics and most systems of philosophy is a failure to ground claims in evidence, physical, forensic evidence. And here's why. If you use your reason to make a claim, which frankly there are many biblical apologists who make very, very reasonable-sounding claims 
about God's nature, character, relation to historical events using reason, but someone else can use reason to make a contradictory claim, and you don't have any way to decide which of the two claims is correct. Elegant reasoning can ultimately lead you astray. It can separate you from what's happening in reality. And the reason I find science so compelling is science is a methodology based on checking your thinking using results in the real world. Now, you would say, but science can't speak to the supernatural. And I would agree. But my point is we haven't found anything that can authoritatively demonstrate that the supernatural exists. And if so, what is the nature and character of the supernatural realm, a supernatural creator, any of those things we can pontificate about, we can reason about, but we are not able to demonstrate with evidence those claims. Now, there's a problem with that approach. I can't scientifically justify many of the beliefs I hold in relationship to my Christian faith. I think the resurrection of Jesus is a core such claim. I can't historically demonstrate that that happened. It is not a scientifically reasonable belief to hold, which is why you never hear me trying to convince someone else the resurrection occurred. (laughs) I don't make public policy decisions based on the resurrection. I don't expect other people to make lifestyle choices or moral ethical decisions based on an authority claim centered on Christ's resurrection. My belief in the resurrection is... (laughs) something I experienced through God. And this is the main difference between empiricists and people of faith. They believe that God's revelation is an authoritative way to learn things. But I say I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And some other person of faith who equally with the same level of conviction believes in God in another form of faith and would say that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And how Do we decide who is right? Well, a court of law would say we look at the evidence. That's it. Uh, Now, Peter Rollins and Michael Gunger and I talked a little bit about philosophy, its strengths, its limitations on an episode of the Liturgist podcast. I'd encourage you to check that out if you want to hear more about uh, what kind of philosophies and schools of philosophy I've studied. I've studied a lot. Um, I just don't find philosophy as convincing in our world as science, but that doesn't mean I dismiss spiritual insights, spiritual truths. I just don't place them as fact claims that I can use to impact the lives of others. And the biggest thing I worry about answering a question like this is that if if apologetics is working for you, it's making your life uh, more beautiful, and it's making you treat others with dignity and respect and kindness, and it leads you to a faith which is fulfilling, then I would not dissuade you from your passion towards apologetics. Don't let my objections hold you back. I'm just giving you, you know, my honest answer. That's the only thing I can do on the show. And listen, the questions lately have been getting harder. We've gone from a show 
where people of faith have uh, some basic science questions, I think, to where a lot of this audience is pretty dialed in on science already, and they send me the questions they couldn't figure out on their own. So as a result, to try to get answers that I can, you know, defend pretty well, I'm having to go from spending 10 minutes per question to an hour or two hours or three hours per question uh, to try to get reasonable answers for you. And that's just the nature of... uh, (laughs) Having a really smart audience, honestly, I think most of you are smarter than I am. Because of that, when I say things like I just said and really apologetics, if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. I'm not here as an expert. I'm here with one commitment and one commitment only, and that is to create the space for your questions and to answer them honestly. That's the whole thing. So in that spirit of creating space for your question, and answering honestly. Those are my objections to apologetics and why I think empiricism is the most defensible epistemological philosophy. (laughs) And now, you know, that's the easiest way to say that. So uh, for those of you listening who don't know what epistemology is, Google will be happy to fill you in. Hey, Science Mike. I have a question for you about having a one-track mind. Um, I'm somebody who can get very obsessive about projects that I'm working on, um, especially if they require a lot of creativity. And this can be very beneficial in the sense that it motivates me to actually get some work done on those projects um, and accomplish some things creatively. But it can be very detrimental when I'm sitting with my fiancé and she knows that I'm not listening to her because I'm giving her short answers And it seems like I would rather be doing this other thing than talking with her or sitting with her or having dinner with her. Um, So I guess my question is, what is the science behind having a one-track mind? Um, And why does my brain seem to snap to these things that I'm thinking about without me intentionally doing it or without me even wanting to think about those things in that particular moment? It seems to just happen. And then furthermore, what productive things can I try to do to change this behavior so that it's not detrimental to my relationships, but also so that it doesn't sacrifice my motivation for these creative projects that I'm working on. Thank you for everything you do for Ask Science Mike and for The Liturgist. Um, Thanks for keeping the conversation open. I appreciate everything you do, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you again. Bye. Oh, well, the first thing is I don't know I have the standing to answer this question. (laughs) Um, you and I suffer from a similar affliction. Uh, my wife, Jenny, who I often call the honey badger with great affection, still complains that I get distracted, um, that sometimes I'm not present in our home because I work here now and in this office I'm recording right now, I'll have this strike of inspiration about one of your questions or an idea for something on the liturgist podcast or a new book or an article I've been working on, and I have to come running into the room to kind of get it out of my head. And sometimes when I don't do that, I'll just sit at the table and think about this work. And meanwhile, my wife and children say I'm there, but I'm not there. So I know what you are talking about. And what we see in research is, um, well, not all that encouraging at first. Basically, there are several conditions, several psychological conditions 
which are similar in neurological origin. And those are workaholism, obsessive compulsive disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Now, OCD and OCPD are different, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what all these conditions have in common is this kind of compulsive focus, often on things other than those around us would expect people to focus on. Neurologically, this comes down to a relationship between your orbitofrontal cortex, which is a part of the brain I talk about a lot because of its roles in um, ethics and consciousness um, and also in focus and concentration. And for example, in people with OCD or ADHD, uh, some studies have shown that uh, the orbitofrontal cortex in these states of, of inappropriate focus or intense focus uh, will actually have a higher glucose metabolism than uh, a neurotypical or a baseline brain. And uh, it's a relationship there. And then also uh, with your basal ganglia, which is the, the very most primitive part of the human brain, right down by the brain stem, and uh, the hippocampus. So these three, this network between these three parts of the brain gets intense <laughs> in people who are workaholics who exhibit OCD, ADHD, or OCPD. Uh, and clinically speaking, workaholics are much more likely to be diagnosed with one of those conditions. And it's not all bad. Now, OCD tends to be somewhat crippling. Uh, ADHD can really interfere with work. But workaholics who don't have ADHD uh, or workaholics with obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, OCPD, tend to be really successful. They tend to get ahead at work. When they're artists, they tend to do great work. If you could imagine that uh, people with OCD are plagued by unwanted thoughts, people with OCPD are delighted by them. That's a little... Uh, difference in the conditions. We imagine that many of the great industry titans of the 20th and 21st century are people who exhibit symptoms of OCPD. Steve Jobs was one. Uh, there's, there's stories of Steve Jobs and uh, when the Macintosh factory was being created, crawling around the floor looking for grains of sand or dirt because he believed that the factory couldn't be kept spotless. It couldn't produce perfect machines. Uh, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, other titans of an industry have exhibited signs of OCPD. Now, we don't want to remotely diagnose people, um, but it's something that experts have talked about and theorized. And when this happens, when you dig into something, you just can't let go. And this can be destructive in relationships. As much as it can be good for your career, it can be bad for your personal relationships. Uh, now, I have made great progress in managing my workaholic tendencies, though I relapse often. And this is from a series of experiences. First of all, workaholics, uh, those of us who get obsessed with our craft or our trade, are prone to burnout. We work too hard for too long to the point we lose the ability to work. And if you know anything about workaholics, 
When you can't work, you get anxiety, guilt, depression. And so this becomes like it intensifies the burnout because you can't recover because you can't deal with not working. Uh, By the way, neurologically speaking, workaholism shows the classic signs of, of any addictive behavior or substance. So you don't want to burn out. And that means even if you're not worried about relationships, just for your own productivity, the best way to continue to do the thing that you enjoy is to learn to control your work. Here's some things that help. One, structure. Becoming more structured about your time is essential. I run my day on a calendar and a clock, and I have times of creative output. I have times where I return emails and phone calls, and then I have time where I am not allowed to work, where I'm with my family, where I spend time with friends. And I have a set of controls that let me offset that impulse. Because a lot of times if you're a creative person, you have an idea, and if you don't get it out of your head, you lose it. And that's like, in our industry, that's losing gold. So I have little apps on my phone. I have mind mapping apps. I have what is called MindNote. I have an app called Evernote. And when I have that little strike of inspiration, I just go ahead and get it out of my head and into the app in just 20 or 30 seconds, right? Really, really fast, as fast as possible. Sketch out the idea so I can come back to it later and rekindle that inspiration. So combining, you know, a more regimented schedule uh, with the capacity to, to do mind dumps and get things out of the brain helps train me to feel like I don't have to run into my office and get working immediately. Now, I also have times of the day when I don't allow myself to use computers or a smartphone. In those times, I have legal pads and notebooks I write ideas down in. But it's this idea of you're kind of uh, redirecting this impulse, this compulsion to get to work. Instead of fully working, you're just giving yourself the breadcrumbs to get back to that state at a time that you're actually working. Another technique that I practice a lot is mindfulness. Uh, Of course, if you're familiar with mindfulness meditation, which if you listen to the show, I'm sure you are. Um, It's a way of simply being aware of your actions and thoughts. And I'll use mindfulness in conjunction with something called cognitive behavior therapy to train myself to let go, to focus on this moment. When I'm in conversation with someone, I have little tricks. I've trained myself to seek presence in a conversation. I look in people's eyes. I pay close attention to the sounds and mannerisms they make. I dial up my awareness of what they're doing. And using mindfulness, I interrupt my brain's desire to anticipate what they're going to say and have a response ready. I've learned to have slower conversations, to allow pauses when the person I'm talking to finishes speaking before I respond. A, to give myself time to think of something since I've trained myself not to preemptively have a retort. And also sometimes I've found in conversations when you don't immediately say something, the person will keep talking. They have more to say. This has led to a deepening of the relationships in my life, learning to have this slower, more intentional, more focused conversational energy. So, Uh, Yeah, this is totally a brain science thing. Um, I've got some links uh, talking about these conditions on AskScienceMike.com this week. 
And then I'll also have a couple of resources about cognitive behavior therapy if you'd like to check that out. It's good that you're aware that this tendency that has the potential to lead you to success can also have a lot of costs in your personal relationships. And we all need those relationships to live lives of happiness and contentment and fulfillment. Uh, A really good life, I'm finding, is a life that combines meaningful work with meaningful relationships. Our last question came in via email, and it reads, Hey Mike, what's the science behind remarriages? Being single and approaching 30, it's almost a given that a lot of people I date are coming with past relationships and or kids. I know remarriages are common, but what is the science behind them lasting? I hear statistics all over the place of second marriages being doomed. Is that the case? Should I steer away from previously married dates? If there is hope, what is a single to look for in their potential mate to indicate they are a lifelong partner material? And being that I love your heart and faith, what would the Christian view of remarriages be? I would love to believe in God's redemption and renewal being lived out in the story of my life, and a remarriage seems like a grace-filled second chance that Christ gives to us all, but growing up in conservative Christianity, it's hard to swallow remarriage or past divorces. Thank you so much for all you do and for reading this, you rock. Okay, uh, first of all, the statistics on remarriage, um, that's real. Repeat marriages are statistically less likely to last. These figures vary year by year, but about 50% of first marriages fail. About 67% of second marriages fail. About 73% of third marriages fail. Uh, The first message there is marriage is tough statistically. I mean, you know, depending on the year, it's actually falling. It's less than half today. Um, but a significant number of first marriages fail. And because of that, the marriage rate is falling. People Divorce is so traumatic, many people are opting to not get married at all. And uh, they still share life, cohabitation, they have children together. Uh, but we don't know as much about how successful those relationships are because they're a lot harder to gather data about because there's no like government filing that happens when those relationships fall apart or when they form, unlike with marriage and divorce, which gives us these big pools of data to work with. Um, But I don't think this means repeat marriages are doomed. I don't think it means marriage is impossible for those people who are interested in marriage. I just think it means we don't teach people how to have successful marriages. And honestly, the church really hasn't helped that very much. What we see in science is that there may be some good anecdotal anecdotal device in society and even in religious society about how to have good marriages. But when scientists have studied couples, they have found some interesting things. Uh, one, one, <laughs> one neuroscientist used brain imaging to study older couples, and he found that uh, happy couples had an interesting neurological correlation between their uh, the wife's level of neurological activity 
and unexpected emotional responses from her spouse. In other words, if um, you shared, showed a video of the spouse laughing and you told her that he just saw bad news and she had elevated neurological response compared to what she would have for a stranger, that was a predictor for which couples reported being happy or not. I just thought that was fascinating. I don't have necessarily a conclusion from that. It's just a little data piece. But when people have dug in deeper into marriages and, and, and family therapy and learning science-driven insights about that, then uh, we find some interesting things. So these are a few tips that you would look for in yourself and a partner to evaluate how successful a relationship could be. The first one, uh, which is really amazing, is happy, satisfied couples have five positive interactions for every one negative interaction with each other. So if you have ask people to like score their interactions and write them down, um, the happiest couples have a five to one ratio. Couples that end up in divorce, it's 0.8 to one. They have a few more negative interactions in aggregate than positive. Isn't that interesting? Uh, happy couples talk about five more hours per week than unhappy couples. Um, how a partner responds when you tell them good news is a big indicator. If they ask a lot of questions, if they offer congratulations and are very enthusiastic, if they want to hear the story about what happened, that's a good indicator. They'll be a good partner according to the data. Uh, and the way you and your partner deal with conflict is really important. Displays of contempt are a relationship killer. Displays of affection amid conflict is a sign of health. And here's something really surprising. Studies are showing that unresolved conflict is very healthy. So relationships where people feel like they have to come to a resolution on every issue are actually less likely to be successful than people who can disclose conflict and then basically agree to disagree. And this was a huge insight for me when I learned that because my wife and I disagree about a lot of things and we get it out, but we don't come to any like agreement over sometimes even substantive issues, but we love and respect each other and acknowledge the validity of the other's position. Um, the last thing I would say is the friendship aspect of a relationship frames every other part of our factor, uh, including sex, romance, attitude toward money. All those things come down to how you feel about the friendship and the marriage. So regardless of whether someone's been married or not, you're looking for these things, the positive to negative ratio of experiences, the amount of time you spend in conversation, how they respond to good news when you tell it to them how they respond in conflict, and what the friendship part of the relationship feels like. Uh, now, if someone has been divorced, it's entirely possible that they have decent relationship skills and their partner did not. Statistically speaking, these numbers make a lot of sense, as subsequent marriages tend to statistically put your relationship skills at a fundamental level more into the spotlight. But I would evaluate less based on how many times someone has been married and more on these kind of quantitative relationship dynamics that are predictors for long-term marriage success. Lots of resources on the website this week, AskScienceMike.com, about this topic. If you'd like to dig deeper 
into these numbers and learn more about them. Really, really great question. Thank you. Well, that does it for Ask Science Mike this week. If you heard snoring and click clacking in honor of National Dog Day this week, I didn't kick the dogs out of the office when I recorded the show. And they are terrible podcast recording companions. They have no respect uh, for your audio environment, but they are they are at least good dogs. Um, so a couple things. Send in your questions using the hashtag AskScienceMike or go to AskScienceMike.com where you can type out a text question or record a voice question and put that on the show. Um, we want to thank our patrons on Patreon for not only picking the show's questions every week, but for making the show financially possible. I want to thank Andrew Galucky for being uh, an amazing contributor to the program and organizing our together groups on Facebook. If you'd like to connect with other people in your city who listen to Ask Science Mike, go to AskScienceMike.com and then click on the Together button. Andrew is in charge of all that. Craig Nordeen handles production and sound design. And my boy Jeb Botterford wrote the Ask Science Mike theme song. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week.